bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day, another chance to bring you glory by following you and obeying you and praising your name. And Father, we thank you for the true meaning of Christmas, that we don't lose sight of it, and that you're giving this up us this opportunity to reflect on it, to step back, look at the big picture, and not forget all the mercy and grace you've shown us. Father, most of all, we thank you that you sent your son to be born of a virgin, to become a true man, to take the place of mankind on the cross. We are forever grateful that you were willing to judge him for us so that we don't have to be judged. And so whoever trusts in him from the heart will be saved forever and ever by your grace. Father, we ask that you bless this message. Have your spirit guide us and teach us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of your spirit. Amen. Reflecting on Christmas. It's a good thing to do, especially as we get spun up sometimes in this world and even run down from what might be considered worldly parts of the celebration that we're so um, used to being built into our culture. As we recently finished our series on grace and works, the Spirit gave me license to share a little bit about Christmas tonight as Pastor did last Thursday. And so, like Thursday, this message will also be a bit shorter. Uh, it's just a sharing of thoughts that the Spirit has brought into my mind over the last week or so this year. And uh, again, He's given me permission to share them, and they are what they are. They're, they're from the Spirit. They're things that maybe He wants us to dwell on right now, and hopefully will give us a better perspective uh, of where we are right now, especially at this time of year. So let's start this way. Christmas is an opportunity for us to pause and remember that our Lord, God, and Creator came for us. Don't take that for granted. Just think about that. Our Lord, God, and Creator came for us. It's not like we were good children, right? We were estranged children. We rebelled. And, and God in His perfect justice and righteousness must judge sin and, and, and can't just overlook it and ignore it. He has to do the right thing. But instead of settling on that and doing what He justly could have done and should have done to us, He came down to us. And He literally left His abode and obviously became one of us. So it's beyond, it's beyond words, it's beyond... Um, human understanding and comprehension that God would bother to do this. And that's really what we're reflecting on. He came down from heaven, reaching down to fallen, rebellious creatures. And he did it in the mildest, most vulnerable form possible. He came down to us in the mildest, most vulnerable form possible. Is there more vulnerable a form than an infant, a helpless infant? 
So perspective-wise, as human beings, we have a fleshly tendency towards idolatry, right? Our flesh tends towards idolatry. We like to put people on pedestals. We like to, quote-unquote, worship our, our idols, our heroes in the world, even making ourselves idols at times in whatever area we think we qualify. So we therefore often use superlatives like the greatest. You've heard that a million times in your life. He's the greatest. She's the greatest. Right? The sports figure, the greatest. The greatest of all time. Why do we love, why do we have this innate desire to put that tag on people when they're only people? The greatest of all time. Well, it's part of our idolatry. The flesh wants to do that. But most of the time we use that term, the greatest, it isn't really accurate. Right? Amen? How often do we use the term, the greatest, about anybody, and it's really true? So one thing on my mind this Christmas is that that phrase is accurate about God himself coming down to us. Like, we can honestly, truly say that. Is it fair to say the greatest, quote-unquote, would be the one who has all power and all knowledge? In other words, there's no greater king if we're going to get into a battle of power and strength and might and all that stuff. There's no greater king than our God. There can only be one truly greatest one. That's the meaning of the word, after all. Is it fair to say the one who is truly the greatest would be the one who created the entire universe and only needed to use his fingers to spread it all out? Does that qualify, you think? Are we exaggerating when we call him the greatest? Not quite, right? On the board, Isaiah forty twelve part A, who the Lord God, in context, has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span. The span means the spread of the fingers. This is how easy it was for him. Not only did, did he create everything, but he said, let me just shoo the planets like this exactly where I want them and they'll be perfect, even though they're billions and billions of miles apart from each other. Picture right now our vast universe. Just think about what we know as outer space and the planets and the solar system and all the stars we can see. Think about what we know about its size and area and the billions of stars out there. There's a reason we call it space, right? We call it space because there seems to be a limitless amount of space between these gigantic stars. Stars much, much bigger than the sun. And what's much bigger than these gigantic stars is the space in between them all. So, again, stepping back, looking at the big picture, looking at the situation we're in, the little peons we are on this earth, compared to the Lord God Almighty and His vast creation that He spreads out with His fingers. Then think that the Bible says, not only did God create all that, but his home, what some people call the third heaven, 
is beyond the universe somewhere. Try to picture that. We can't measure the universe. We can't see an end to it, even with all the technology we have, and yet God has a home beyond all this. This is like his little ant farm. The whole universe is like his little ant farm, and he has his own, his own domain beyond that. So we're talking about perspective, right? And perspective at Christmas. It is this God, the king and creator of the entire universe, whose home is beyond the universe, who left the unlimited to become exceedingly limited into the body of a baby boy. Again, it's this God, our God, the king and creator of the entire universe, whose home is beyond the universe even, who left the unlimited to become exceedingly limited in the body of a baby boy. Now that's sacrifice. That's sacrifice. When we talk about sacrifice, we all, all, often automatically go to the cross in our mind, right? And that was the sacrifice, and it was. The Lamb of God, the innocent Lamb of God, being you know, offered and sacrificed. But what about this sacrifice on the board? What about leaving your perfect life behind? The only one that ever had a perfect life would be God. What about leaving your perfect life behind to enter a world full of sinners who are going to basically torture you in the end? So God literally went from the greatest, most powerful position in the universe to the least, the most vulnerable position. And when I say the word least, please take it with a grain of salt and keep it in context of the analogy, okay? Don't get all upset that I'm not calling Jesus the least. Think about going from the most powerful position in the universe to being limited in possibly the most vulnerable position in the universe, that of an infant. I was also thinking it's not like Jesus was born a baby on earth, but in a castle, protected by the king's army, right? It's not like he was given this type of um, unnatural protection even. Uh, we all, you know, unless, unless you're born a king, which is pretty rare percentage-wise, you're born in this earth as an infant into a family, and you're not, you don't have any um, outside extra protection, let's say, from an earthly perspective, like a king might. And neither did Jesus. It's not like Joseph was some karate master. You know, anybody comes near, no problem, don't worry about it, I got it. It's not like he was Arnold Schwarzenegger with the, you know, automatic guns and he never gets shot, but he kills everybody else that comes at him. It's not like Jesus had this special protection regarding the vulnerable position he took. He really did become the least, the most vulnerable he could be. And even with the modest hands of Joseph and Mary by him. Right? There was no supernatural 
well, that's not the right word. There was no abnormal protection for him. Joseph and Mary were Joseph and Mary. A couple of young kids, honestly, that God decided to use. But the supernatural part of it did happen. So that even though God chose to take this most vulnerable form possible, the supernatural happened where the Holy Spirit protected Jesus his whole life. Uh, from, from being a baby when King Herod tried to butcher all the two-year-old boys in Bethlehem to make sure the king was dead. He's protected from that by the Holy Spirit, by the warnings. He was protected all of his life from evil men and evil kings and from the schemes of the devil and his demons, even though he was in this vulnerable state, so to speak, in the flesh. The Holy Spirit protected him all the way to the cross, which was part of the plan all along, of course. And on a side note, as we talk about this, we all can be in vulnerable situations in life. And if it's God's will for you to be untouched, then he can and will protect you. Just look at the baby Jesus as our illustration. And there were kings coming after him. So if you and I are in a vulnerable situation and you think there's no hope and no quote-unquote protection that we see, You'll be untouched if that's God's will for you, just like Jesus was. So we continue on with perspective at Christmas. Our God, the God of the universe, literally went from being the greatest to the least from a human perspective. And he did this for us out of his indescribable love and mercy. I mean, why would God do this? If you had everything, would you do that for anybody, even somebody you loved? I doubt it. If you had everything, and you had all power, and you were in control of everything, and you had a perfect life, let's say, would you submit yourself to the humiliation of a fleshly body in the form of sinners, to be abused by sinners? And that's why it's so indescribable. Again, our God literally went from being the greatest to the least from a human perspective. And he did this for us out of his indescribable love and mercy. I was reading the Gospels in, in Matthew and Luke, um, as I like to do around Christmas time, to get, you know, reoriented to the virgin birth and everything that happened 2,000 years ago. And Matthew and Luke are the two Gospels that describe the virgin birth and the events surrounding it. And the word mercy kept popping out at me. And isn't it amazing how you can read the Bible, you can read the same book over and over. I mean, we keep saying this, but it's so, it just keeps happening and it still amazes me. How you can read the same chapter even, over and over, and something new comes out that you never saw before. And this time for me, the thing that popped out was mercy in the events of the virgin birth. That's another thing to reflect on this Christmas season when you think about what God did. God lived out a crazy, humbling plan. Crazy from our perspective, right? God lived out a crazy, humbling plan out of sheer mercy for us. He certainly didn't have to do it. Pure mercy 
So I hope we all think about that pure mercy he decided to show us when he sent his son down to take the position as the least, so to speak. And by the way, who is mercy for? Who is mercy needed for? The guilty. Not the innocent, right? So God saw our need. He saw our hopelessness. The chance of zero people becoming saved on their own. And said, all right, I'm going to do something out of sheer mercy. Because they're guilty and they plain out need it, so I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to show pure mercy. And as we know, Scripture says we are all guilty sinners. And that's the very person or people that need mercy. We saw on Thursday from Pastor Collins' reflections regarding celebrating Christmas. If we're going to reflect on Christmas, let us reflect on the whole of the gospel, that we were born sinners in need of a Savior. Like Start at the beginning. Why did Christ come? That's why Christ came. We were born sinners in need of somebody, anybody, to save us because we could not do it ourselves. And as Pastor mentioned, we should all share Paul's perspective in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's all about perspective. It's all about having the perspective that you need mercy. That's one of the things that we can lose sight of. 1 Timothy 1.15 It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason... I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul found mercy. Paul knew he found mercy. We all found mercy when Jesus came down to earth, going from the unlimited to the limited. We all found mercy when we personally accepted him as our own Lord and Savior, as our own substitute for judgment. And the spiritual men and women who were part of the coming of Christ into the world, they were very aware of that same mercy upon them. In other words, they didn't overlook it. You know, we tend to, as, as humans in the flesh, to take things for granted, to overlook things, to almost expect things, expect nice things to be done for us. And we take advantage of people. Well, a humble spiritual person doesn't overlook things like that, like grace and kindness and mercy. A humble spiritual person recalls the mercy of God even every day. And that's what the spiritual men and women at the time of the virgin birth that God used, that's what they did. That's why God used them, because they were humble. 
And they thanked God for his mercy every step of the way. God can only use the humble. He's not going to use the arrogant, the puffed up, those who are double-minded, keep going back and forth. He's going to use those who humbly follow him. And as we're going to see, humbly following him, it's the same as being aware of your need for mercy and aware of God's mercy being shown to you. So we begin with Mary as she exalts the Lord for the miraculous work he had chosen her for, and she praises God for his mercy. Go to Luke 1, 46. <clears throat> Luke 1, 46. Again, the spiritual men and women that God used in relation to the virgin birth of Christ, they were all humble, and they all were aware and appreciative of God's mercy. Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Who is his mercy upon? Those who fear him. Who's those who fear him? The humble. The believers. That's who his mercy falls upon. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. For his name's sake, he showed mercy to those who were humbly willing to receive it. We then see the people who were witnessing Elizabeth's miraculous birth of John the Baptist. Remember, Elizabeth was too old to conceive. The people that witnessed her miraculous birth, they appreciated and recognized God's great mercy towards her. And that's why they helped her celebrate. That, that was the basis of their celebration. If you look at Luke 1, verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her. And they were rejoicing with her. What did they hear about? His great mercy. To just a person. To, someone, to some sinner that doesn't deserve it. And yet because Elizabeth followed God, because she was humble, there's actually a verse that calls her blameless with Zechariah and the way they follow the law. Because she was humble, because she feared the Lord, she followed God, and God said, okay, I can use you. I can cast my mercy on you and use you in a special, unique way for my plan, for my glory. And the people around her knew it was God's great mercy being shown to her. 
because nobody deserves it. God has had great mercy on all who choose to follow him. And whatever your spiritual gift is, that's great mercy shown towards you. Who are you to have whatever gift? Who am I to be able to teach the word of God? Nobody and nothing. And so it's sheer mercy that he says, you know what, I'm going to give you this post to man. I'm going to let you have this duty in my kingdom. And what should we do? <laughs> Bow down. Be like, wow, thank you. I know how bad I am. I know my sins. Thank you for your mercy. And then we have Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, also acknowledging God's mercy toward him and the people of Israel. Look at Luke 1, verse 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, talking about John the Baptist, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Sheer mercy. Tender mercy, Zacharias calls it. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Mercy is the other side of the coin of grace. And when they're shown by God to man, it's 100% pure. It's 100% pure mercy, 100% pure grace as the way of freely giving to the undeserving. Not only is God's grace and mercy pure and have no wrong motivation to it like we do sometimes, not only is His motivation and His gifts like mercy and grace, are they pure? But also the one who needs the mercy are totally impure, are totally guilty. That even magnifies it even more. But we're talking about pure mercy, where God just says, I'm going to cast it on you, even though I should judge you. That's mercy. As the Spirit's been giving us, having the right perspective is so important. And this includes our perspective of the virgin birth of Christ into the world. Maybe we should be looking at it as a great act of mercy. Maybe we take it for granted. So on the board, sheer mercy. When we acknowledge and rely on God's mercy towards us, we are set free from relying on self. And we can live in the freedom that is His mercy.
Think of the mercy of God like a rock foundation that we believers can stand on from the day of our salvation throughout every day of being saved. You're standing on his mercy. Like if you're standing on his hand, you know how he can pull his hand away whenever he wants something like that? Well, he doesn't do that because he's perfect and he's faithful and he's pure. But you're literally standing on his mercy. You don't have to live, but he gives you life. So again, on the board, when we acknowledge and rely on God's mercy towards us, we are set free from relying on self. In other words, we know you can't, we can't do it. Without mercy, we'd all be dead. And therefore, when we rely on his mercy, we can live in the freedom that is his mercy. And those who rely on God's mercy, those who are humble, are those he can and will exalt as the scriptures pour out to us. They're all, you know, a lot of these things are, are interrelated. They're woven together. And mercy is a great illustration of humility when someone realizes their need for it. So here's an illustration we're all familiar with. Uh, go to Luke 18, verse 9. And this man has been on my mind lately as an example of the only way to approach God even on a daily basis. Really, this is the only way, the, the, the right way to approach God. Luke 18, 9. And he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was, not even, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven and was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice the word justified is in there too. The sinner that cries out to God for mercy, the one who repents of his sinfulness and turns to Christ in their heart as their Lord and Savior, that humble person, that's the one that's justified by God. We know that. And that humble person that cries out for mercy, he's going to be exalted by God. So there we see the man that honestly cries out for mercy that man is the humble man that will be shown grace and even exalted. Jesus said it here. Mary said it in her speech that we just read. James says it. And Peter says it. The same idea. Without God's mercy, we're nothing. But with God's mercy, if we cry out for it and therefore receive it in humility... With God's mercy, He makes us everything and gives us everything. 
Jesus stated the same principle in Luke 14. Go to Luke 14, verse 7. We see the same principle using a different illustration. And he, Jesus, began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. By the way, has this ever happened to you? Did you ever do that? I've done it. I was thinking about it as I was reading this. And I, I, I have a vague memory of certain situations where you go up kind of in the front row. You assume, you know, that you can sit in the front or in the best seat. And then someone tells you to move. And you're all the way in the back because everyone else already filled in all the other seats. Pride comes before a fall, right? So Jesus is saying, don't do that. Uh, instead, be humble in verse 10. But when you are invited... Go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But this is really a hard issue. Jesus isn't saying, Just do this so you get the best seat in the end, right? He's saying, do this because it's the right way to think. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Go sit in the back, because you know what? You probably should be there anyway. <laughs> right? And then I'll elevate you by grace, because you humbled yourself. And you notice in these verses, look at verse 14. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And we'll see that in the other verses, too. You know, people that humble themselves, humble yourselves. It's your own decision whether you choose to be humble like that or not. And it's a heart issue. It is not something you do to try to win the game in the end, as we try to do. So again, the man who admits his sin and that he needs God's mercy will be shown mercy. Those with humble hearts will be exalted. And we saw Mary bring up this same idea when she was praising God on the board. We already read this, but look at Luke 1.52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Why does God bring down rulers from their thrones? Does he bring down all rulers from their thrones? He didn't do that to Solomon, for example. Does he, would he do that to a godly king who's humble? No. But he has to bring down rulers from their thrones because they're arrogant. In context, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. So let's see a couple more familiar passages. And when you see the word humble, I want you to think of those who are willing to admit their need for God's mercy. Go to James 4, verse 6. James 4, 6. And again, as we read, when you see the word humble, think of those willing to admit they need God's mercy. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. Think of crying out for mercy, like the man that was praying next to the Pharisee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Why? Does God not want us to be happy? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Again, think of crying out for mercy, folks. That's the right perspective, that we need it. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Like the man beating his chest, crying out for mercy to God, that's the person that gets it. That's the person that understands the spiritual life and the heart that God is after. We're all so unworthy. And we lose track so easily. We're so stupid. And that's why we need the Word every day. Because we lose track extremely easily. We start to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And we get puffed up. And if we don't humble ourselves, that's when God has to hit us with the hammer over the head to knock us down a couple pegs. So we stay in the Word, we stay in the Spirit, we keep humbling ourselves. And then we allow God to, you know, cast mercy on us, however He wants. But we're all so unworthy. And unless we are willing to admit that in our hearts, that we are unworthy, then arrogance is going to get in the way of God's grace and mercy showering you. And in fact, as the scripture says, God will be opposed to you. So God is just waiting to be merciful to us, to pour it out on us. Yet what does he wait for? The humble heart, the free will to align with his will on the matter of our sin and guilt. Even every day. We're being saved every day. And even every day, he's waiting for this attitude, this repentant heart, so he can cast mercy on us and bring himself glory with weak sinners like us. Draw near to him as one seeking the mercy of a king. Think about that picture in your mind, if if that helps. Draw near to God like you would draw near to a king of a country whose mercy you are at, whether you like it or not. That's even a small picture of the true situation. Go to 1 Peter 5, 5. This is one more verse that gives us the same principle, just stated a bit differently. And again, when you, when you see the word humble, think of the one that admits his need for mercy. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. This all begins with man recognizing his need for God's pure mercy. 
And the mercy of God was revealed to us in the virgin birth. That's a perspective that we can, we can adapt to look at things rightly and humbly and say that very act was an incredible act of sheer mercy from God. So now back where we began as we close. God willingly traveled from the greatest position in the universe to the least. And this reminds us that showing mercy and grace involves a sacrifice of some sort. Again, God willingly traveled from the greatest position in the universe to the least. And this illustration, he showed mercy by doing this. It shows us that when you do show mercy or grace to somebody, it involves a sacrifice of some sort. It almost has to. Because when you show somebody mercy, there's a need for mercy. If there's a need for mercy, that means you're filling a need somehow. It could be emotional. It could be financial. Um, it could be a sacrifice of your time, your energy. If there's a need, you're filling it. If there's an empty cup someone's holding and they're hurting and you say, okay, I'm going to act merciful toward them, you're going to fill the cup. And that, that means you're pouring out your own wealth, so to speak. And this is, what a better illustration than God becoming a man. So on the board, we are to follow God's example. Truly showing love involves the laying down of your life for others who truly need mercy. Again, truly showing love involves the laying down of your life for others who truly need mercy. And our God did it in the ultimate way. He who was truly the greatest became least. He who was truly rich became poor. Beyond any thoughts or understanding of rich and poor that we can even fathom. Okay, let's go back to superlatives. He who was the richest became the poorest. Just stick with the analogy. What does an infant have that he can give you? He can't even take care of himself. And so God literally left it all behind, put it all aside, and went to a position of total vulnerability. What, what in our perspective, would be poverty. On the board, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of that word grace. Think of mercy. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. What does a gracious person do? The very definition of grace is almost putting aside yourself for the benefit of others. That's grace. That's acting in grace, right? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. 
He literally had it all, and he put it all aside for us. This perspective of God's love and sacrifice and mercy toward us, that's what we need to rightly enjoy Christmas, to have the right perspective about it. That's what we need to step back and truly appreciate the miracle of the virgin birth and the fact that God even was willing to go there. So as we finish you know, this lesson and, and you finish your Christmas celebrations this week in some ways, may we never stop being blown away by the depths of God's mercy toward us because it's sheer mercy. It's totally undeserved. It's not like he was just being nice and we would have survived anyway. We know that. May we never stop being blown away by the depths of God's mercy toward us and by the unspeakable sacrifice he made to save those who would admit their need for his mercy, who would cry out, who would beat their chest before him, just crying, not based on any of your own merits, based solely on his mercy. That's the person God's waiting for, and that's who he wants us to be blown away every day. And hopefully that's the attitude of our heart as we reflect on the true meaning of Christmas. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy. Our words can't describe it. But we thank you that it is pure mercy that you're willing to show us and the great evidence of that is the virgin birth. Help us never take you for granted, Father. Your wonderful grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The way you operated in self-sacrifice for our benefit was an act of sheer mercy. We ask, Father, that you change our perspective, even on Christmas itself and that we see the virgin birth for what it truly is and was. Father, we ask that you help us bring these truths out to a lost and dying world that need it so desperately. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of your Spirit. Amen.